Here we go, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Uh, just a few minutes, we'll be welcoming our guest. This is Dr. Joseph Cabasa. He's a pulmonologist and critical care specialist at Cleveland Clinic. Any uh, housekeeping, Susan, we need to get into? We should get right to our guest. Well, this will be a show about the oh, I word. That's right. I wanted that was the housekeeping. So if if we start mentioning the I word, we will have to switch off YouTube and over to Rumble because YouTube will put us in YouTube jail. Or and we can... we'll stay on Facebook and and Twitter and also on Twitch. Right. YouTube would go over to Rumble uh, if if we feel uncomfortable with the material we're talking about. Two physicians talking about clinical science that God <laughs> knows that's something that YouTube would not want to hear. Yeah. Um, and I don't even know. I have no idea. I have no preconceived ideas about what we would be talking about pro con, you know, just talking the data. I, I don't know. But it gets uncomfortable to have any conversation uh, about uh, words that trigger the, I guess, the AI. It's like using the F word on the radio. We can't do it. It, unfortunately, using the F word on the radio has a due process associated with it. There's the uh, the FCC will get involved and you know, fine you and whatever, and you can appeal it. Here, you're just you're out. You're just done. So let's bring our guest in. Our laws, as it pertains to substances, are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic. Because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin, ridiculous. I'm a, I'm a doctor for <laughs> sake. Where the hell you think I learned that? I'm just saying, you go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. You have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it. I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. I want to give a shout out to our good friends at Blue Mics. If you've heard my voice on this show anytime over the past year, including right now, you've been listening to Blue Microphones. And let me tell you, after more than 30 years in broadcasting, I don't think I have ever sounded better. But you don't need to be a pro or have a fancy studio to benefit from a quality mic. You may not realize it, but if you've been working from home or using Zoom to chat with friends, you probably spend a lot of time in front of a microphone. So why not sound your best? Whether you're doing video conferencing, podcasting, recording music, or hosting a talk show, Blue has you covered. From the USB series that plugs right into your computer to XLR professional mics like the mouse or the Blueberry we use in the studio right now. Bottom line, there's a Blue microphone to fit your budget and need. I can't say enough about Blue mics, and once you try one, you will never go back, trust me. To take your audio to the next level, go to drdrew.com blue. That is drdrew.com B-L-U-E. Anyone who's watched me over the years knows that I'm obsessed with Hydrolyte. In my opinion, the best oral rehydration product on the market. I literally use it every day. My family uses it. When I had COVID, I'm telling you, Hydrolyte contributed to my recovery, kept me hydrated. Now, with things finally reopening back around the country, the potential exposure to the common cold is always around. And like always, Hydrolyte has got your back. Hydrolyte Plus Immunity, my new favorite, starts with their fast-absorbing electrolytes and adds a host of great ingredients Plus, each single-serving easy-pour drink mix contains 1,000 milligrams of vitamin C, 300 milligrams of elderberry extract. Hydrolyte Plus Immunity comes in convenient, easy-to-pour sticks that rapidly dissolve in water, make a great-tasting drink, has 75% less sugar than your typical sports drink. 
uses all natural flavors, gluten-free, dairy-free, caffeine-free, non-GMO, and even vegan. Hydrolyte Plus Immunity is also now available in ready-to-drink bottles at the Walmart next to the pharmacy, or as always, you can find it by visiting hydrolyte.com slash Dr. Drew. Again, that is H-Y-D-R-A-L-Y-T-E dot com slash D-R-D-R-E-W. Be sure to use the code Dr. Drew 25 for a special discount. Dr. Kavaza works at the Cleveland Clinic where he is an ICU specialist and pulmonologist. Dr. Kabaza, welcome to the program. Uh-oh, I got no sound. One second. I I, right. I I gather you can hear me, but I cannot hear you. There you go. Here, try it again. There we go. We got Thanks you. Thanks for now. having me, Dr. Drew. It's uh, yeah, I'll try to be let's, careful with all the... Yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> let, let's, um, let's start with things that... Uh, guys like you know guys and gals like you and i sometimes overlook which is understanding your scope of practice i think most people don't even know what an why the icu specialists do what a pulmonologist is what an internist is they, they have really no idea so let, let's talk about what the training is and what it is you do yeah so uh you know after college i did the four years of medical school like uh, uh like all uh, physicians go through and then i did a three-year residency in internal medicine which is really the study of you know, general medicine and adults, really the, the, the major points of all, uh, you know, all organ systems, every part of a, uh, an adult, really. Um, and then after those three years of training, I did a combined uh, fellowship, which we further subspecialized within internal medicine in pulmonary medicine and critical care. Uh, pulmonary is generally the, you know, the management of, of all sorts of lung diseases, so both as an inpatient and outpatient. And uh, critical care is really just being an intensive care unit doctor, really taking care of some of the sickest patients who uh, have multi-organ failure and really taking care of them uh, you know, on ventilators. And that's kind of how uh, really the field of pulmonary critical care kind of came together, really going back to the polio days. I mean, it was not really a really big specialty intensive care units, but when lots of uh, people would kind of lose their ability to breathe with weakness in the breathing muscles and the iron lungs, a lot of pulmonologists were the ones managing these very sick patients. And gradually after that is kind of where that field of critical care evolved. Um, so for, for a long time, it was pulmonary and critical care together. And I think with the recent big demand, especially the last decade or so on uh, intensivist critical care doctors, there's now just, you can just specialize just in critical care now as well and just jump straight mm -hmm. to taking care of critically ill patients. What is so fascinating, having been a part of the historical evolution of all this. So when I was in, well, when I was first even in practice as a as a general internist, I did lots of critical care. I mean, that's probably half my day. I did tons of critical care. And when I was in training, did lots of critical care. And it was mostly the internist and the cardiologist that were hanging out on the in the ICUs at that time. If you remember, there was always the CCU and then that kind of became the model for the ICU. The coronary care unit became sort of morphed into the ICU. And, uh, it's funny, it's interesting to me, uh, and I remember when a pulmonologist was put uh, as the director of the intensive care unit, his, he was great, and his, his presence as the director still didn't um, replace the fact that there were lots of cardiologists and internists running around in the ICU until really it was when the whole hospitalist thing came about, when internists either became outpatient or inpatient specialized, and the hospitalists, I imagine, would swing by the ICU, but they were not managing the ICU patients. Yeah, the things have evolved, even depending on which type of hospital you're in, in a community setting or more of a rural setting. In some of those more rural settings, hospitalists still manage a lot of 
uh, patients in the ICU and do some procedures while the intensivist is kind of on a, as consults. It's really evolving quite a bit where kind of the intensivist is almost turning into the ICU hospitalist in a way where so many are right. just doing right. ICU what... or just doing That's pulmonary. Right. But, it, but isn't it, it's, it's, it's weird now. I was putting swans in, A-lines, ventilating people, what manage the ventilator. And, and I didn't realize that that had happened. That, that that evolution had happened until I was applying to volunteer in New York City when they were in trouble. I raised my hand and said, I'll, I'll come in. And they started interviewing me for what my skill set was. And I went, yeah, yeah, I do that. Yeah, yeah. I'm telling lots of that. Yeah, yeah. They're like, what? You're going to do, you do, you do invasive lines and ventilator management? I was like, yeah, for years, for a decade. And that that's and that's all gone. That uh, doesn't really exist anymore. Weird. Yeah, that's, even a lot I, mean, of I guess, you know. Yeah, and internal medicine residencies. I mean, a lot of them. Are, a lot of the interns are doing lots of central lines and uh, you know various different bedside procedures, and in some cases intubations. And now it's kind of evolving more to that's even being pushed back in residency to where it's kind of fellowship now is where those procedures are being so done. Everything's just the, the so fact. The fact that the fact that you say the fact that you it's so weird to me because I had my experience and my experience was my experience. But when you say, oh yeah, even sometimes they do do intubations. I would do three intubations a night when I was on call routinely. I mean, it was just routinely. <laughs> just that's we, we just did them all, all night long. And uh, weird. But I, I think, I, I guess it's great for the patients. I worry that the trainees lose a little something. I, I don't know. I, I, I guess it just means more training, really, is what, which is never bad for patients. But it kind of pushes back, though, the training. Because even if it's a fellow who's learning the procedures, they're still new to the procedure. So everyone who's learning is still yeah. new. And I think getting that experience as an intern or you know, just in your residency is so valuable. Um, and you really learn ownership of the patients really a, a early in your career. And I, I feel like we've lost a lot of that, it seems like, in medicine. Yeah. So you just leaped into something that I obsess about a little bit which is the nature of our training sort of of young physicians. And because we were look at a mash unit all the time, we were in, we were in the fire all the time. We were trained that we were doing something incredibly important and more important than our fatigue or our illness or our depression or our anything. Nothing was more important than the care of the patient. And that came through loud and clear early. <laughs> early on and i'm not sure that's going on anymore is it yeah so at least when i trained i did residency uh about you know 13 years ago is when i started residency and we were still it was a lot easier than when you did from an hour standpoint but we still have to do 30 hour shifts you know every fourth day uh for a lot of months and and so i thought that's it was good. kind of perfect i mean i think the yeah, yeah, you still got to experience that that grind where when you're in the real world, nothing is as bad as residency. Still, when I trained, uh, when you admit a patient, you know, it, it at 9 a.m. and you still have 27 hours to go, you know, you learn how to yeah. tuck in patients so well. You learn how to talk to their families and really develop that rapport mm -hmm. and to make sure that every decision you made for those next few hours helps so that the patient's tucked in for the rest of the yeah. night. So you both benefit. Patient's better that's cared right. for, and you get less calls at night. No, that's right. Um, and you know that's right. Reason. No, and you also learn that spidey sense, like, hey, I'm the, or the nurse asked me some strange questions, or I haven't heard anything in a little while. You, you, have a, you have a sort of a clock that goes off in your head, like, I better check in on that guy. And uh, that, that's invaluable. 
Yeah, and I think the shift work now is most of the residency trainings now, it seems like it's more shift work. It's just day shift and night shift. Mm-hmm. And you kind of lose that yeah. that ownership and putting someone in for the night. If, if you, there's a loose end, well, the night team will take care of it. And I think that's taken away a lot from training. I think we need to go yeah, more towards I, I agree. Uh, middle. I agree, but you know, here we are. Uh, if only we had everyone would listen to us. So, so, so let's talk about a little COVID-19. So, uh, what has been your sort of, um, shall we say your narrative, your arc in this pandemic? How, how has it been for you? What have you seen at the beginning? Where are we now? Sort of take me through your thinking on it. It's really been, been crazy. You know, I think going back to March of 2020, even February, when you start hearing some things, I mean, I never imagined this would be something that would affect us in this country. You know, I think, you know, we've seen stuff before uh, with, with SARS and uh, Ebola, things that looks like, you know, they, they seem scary, but they always just stay over there. You know, it never kind of makes it big here. Um, and I did not think COVID was going to be a big deal here. I couldn't even see it sniffing uh, the flu, really. Um, I still have friends who kind of tease me for, you know, non-medical friends where I tried reassuring them, hey, guys, this isn't going to be that big a deal. Don't worry about it. Um, but it wasn't until kind of, you know, in March, I was kind of on our ICU that first week we turned into a COVID ICU in late March. And it was really eerie. I mean, seeing an empty hospital and kind of just fear in everyone's eyes. And, uh, and I started feeling scared. It was, it was just a really weird, eerie feeling in the hospital. Well, well, let's start, let's first... start with that, because I, I remember I remember that. It, it, I, the only way I can sort of the feeling I had, the, the, the way I characterized the memory is it felt like nuclear winter. Like everything yeah. was quiet and silent and, and cold, but let's add, let's just address that first sort of couple months. Was that appropriate? Should we have been that panic driven? Should we have been so totally uh, overtaken by the p- panic and anxiety around this thing? I mean, I, it was just such an unknown. We've just never been in a situation like this that I don't even know what the right you know move is. You know, I mean, I right, think right. So we didn't know. I, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so we, we were so wait, it was a wait and see, wait and see, and maybe maybe it's worse than we think. But then it became clear kind of what it was, right? So so now you're getting yeah. experience with it. You're learning about the cytokine storm. We're coming up with what were some of your favorite first treatment with the cytokine activation? Well, I mean, it, it didn't. We didn't really have much treatment those March, April, May. We I didn't quite know really. I think what we were doing. I mean, I think everybody got hydroxychloroquine initially those first couple of months. I mean, it was yep. it almost felt yep. uneasy. I mean, there wasn't really much that supported, but we, you know, everybody that was part of the infection disease treatment protocols. I um, mean, there's really not much else that was done. It was mostly kind of supportive care. Um, we didn't know from a ventilator standpoint. I mean, should we be using BiPAP and been traditionally like we did? Or did that aerosolize a lot more droplets and risk staff a lot more? Um, so we didn't always have that bridge, that BiPAP stretch, where when people are in high flow oxygen before the ventilator, sometimes we try BiPAP. Um, but we did not really do that, I think, as quickly. We maybe intubated um, versus use that BiPAP step. You know, I think, you know, we started treating it a little bit differently than the usual severe respiratory failures we've really taken care of forever, whether it's influenza or pneumonia or whatever cause of ARDS that... Uh, that may occur. And it just seemed like this was a different looking uh, pneumonia on CT scan, a different flavor of respiratory failure where you'd see very sick people on high amounts of oxygen who looked pretty good. You know, if, if you didn't know how much oxygen they were on, they're sitting at rest, they look really comfortable. Um, and I think that caused a lot of, you know, confusion where is this a different kind of yeah. respiratory yeah. failure? Um, and it was just, it was still kind of scary. I mean, those first couple weeks, I mean, it felt 
very scary. I still remember the first COVID patient I intubated and the number of, you know, layers of protection I put on myself, um, you know, for fear that intubating would aerosolize, you know, quite a bit. Um, so, but then that kind of evolved. Did you, did you do it? Did, did you do what a lot of people did when you came home, lived, stayed in the garage for weeks, that kind of thing? Yeah, I, I, I didn't. I never went that far, you know, because I think I was pretty confident also. I mean, the, from a transmission standpoint, I just did not really feel unless my clothes was soiled with live virus and somebody mm-hmm. just coughed and drooled and spit all over me. And then I, right. you know, and even then, right, even then we didn't know what the we, we weren't sure that it was fomite transmitted. I mean, who knew? I mean, we didn't know that. Yeah, and I think early on we thought it was more by you know contact, uh, especially. I mean, the big emphasis on hand washing and and you know not touching your eyes, yeah. nose, or mouth, which are very important in general. But uh, but I didn't go that far. Now I still, when I got home, I changed. You know, right, you know I went in, I changed right away. But I, you know, I, I know some friends who you know undressed in the garage and then went right to the shower. Um, and you know, you can you'll never regret being extra cautious. You know, especially when we're not quite sure what's going on. Uh, but you know th- th- that thought kind of sinks in, you know, of you know, am I potentially hurting my family? I mean, that does uh, come mm-hmm. in. But that first month, things went from fear to a little bit of adrenaline once we kind of got a feel of things. Of like, wow, I'm really doing something important here. You know, I'm helping very yeah. sick people in a very historic part of time, um, and so you kind of got a, a little bit of adrenaline um, and felt good about what we were doing. And then I think the deaths just started really raining in, kind of that May and June and. Mm-hmm. Um, it just felt like you, you, it almost felt like it was hard to keep anyone alive. And, you know, we're used to death mm-hmm. a lot in the ICU. You know, I'm very comfortable around end of life. Well, let me, let me stop you. I'm going to stop you again, which is yeah. th- that's actually kind of the confusing, one of the confusing parts of what people are reporting who are ICU nurses or pulmonologists, which is when someone rolls into the ICU, their probability of coming out alive is low. Anybody, any, any illness. And you, as a pulmonologist, I certainly, as an internist, I knew who was going to come in and come out, and I knew who wasn't likely to. I mean, it was, it was pretty obvious when, when, you, when you roll them in. All day long, that's all we do in an ICU. Why did this have such an in, disproportionate, uh, dis, cause so much disproportionate distress? I think what was hard about, about this is that it behaved so differently and very unpredictably. You know, I used to feel confident that I could tell when somebody was turning the corner in a critical care setting. If they're in the ICU, for whatever reason, I felt pretty good about pointing, all right, the corner's been turned, tell them and their family, you know, I think we're moving forward here. I I I know know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, I've never been more wrong than with these patients Mm. where, I feel like they're doing uh, turning the corner, you know, a couple a day or two doing better, and then quickly shoot backwards. And it's been unpredictable. I mean, there are people you think that there's no way they're going to survive this, and some will. And others, you know, even even as recently as a couple of weeks ago, I mean, a, a patient I thought would you know just be a couple of days on the ventilator and come off, and he spent five or six weeks uh, on the ventilator and then died in the ICU. And it's just it's it's and I don't know why. I don't think any of us really understand why some people and why it behaves like it does in certain people. Um, and it's just been so hard to predict. And what's also y- unique, like in the flu or other kinds of respiratory failure, you get sick very quickly. You know, you, you feel poorly a day or two, you're on the ventilator. Um, and with COVID, it can take a week or two before they gradually get sick enough to end up needing ventilatory support or end up in the ICU at least. Um, and that's been such right. a weird process right. as well. And it's made it kind of eerie also. These patients are wide awake as they're slowly worsening over days before ending up on the ventilator. Mm. And and that presumably is the cytokine 
syndrome, cytokine activation, whatever we want to call it, cytokine storm. Were you guys mm -hmm. fooling around with any of the the uh, immune modulatory medication early on or even now? Yeah, so I think you know, early on we, we did, I mean, everyone kind of got hydroxychloroquine. That was kind of out of studies until, and then big studies came out, strong studies that suggested it didn't really work. And um, and then we stopped using that after a couple months, but everybody got that in the beginning. Some of the immune modulators, especially tocilizumab, and some of the ones that kind of stop, you know, various cytokines in that chain, you know, were studied, and some antivirals were studied, and and really what's come to the surface over these last, um, um, really these past few months, really for for much of this year. I mean, what we found, um, you know, the dexamethasone seems to be quite helpful at, at really kind of blunting some of that immune response and kind of with the cytokines. Um, and then by adding one of those secondary agents that stops a cytokine down uh, more specifically. Uh, so uh, tocilizumab is, is one of them, which just blocks that IL-6 receptor. It seems to help a little bit when added uh, to dexamethasone in people who have high inflammatory markers. Uh, but most recently, about you know maybe a month and a half ago or so, um, you know, uh, baricitinib, which is a JAK inhibitor, it blocks multiple cytokines down in that pathway. When that's been added uh, to dexamethasone, that has really seemed to do nicely at really preventing or minimizing progression to severe uh, disease, shortening time on the ventilator, um, and the mortality benefit as well. So those are really the main ones that we're using. You know, when you look at kind of over yeah. over time how things have evolved. It's interesting. And personally, Decadron helped me a lot. I, I stayed out of the hospital because I got on Decadron early, got monoclonal antibodies after a few days, and that that was, you know, sick as hell, but but no hospital. And and really yeah, no desaturation, no significant desaturation. Yeah. Yeah, the monoclonal antibodies certainly seem to kind of, especially in high risk, higher risk people, really, you know, seem to blunt things a little bit and minimize at yeah. least some people from progressing to severe illness. But really the dexamethasone, it seems when we started when that was found to be helpful and we started using it more, that, that, that seemed to kind of really cap off some people's severity of respiratory uh, uh, failure. It's not perfect. None of it, unfortunately, has been a silver bullet. Yeah. No, no. Although I'm, I'm very hopeful for this new antiviral, the, the uh, uh, I'm blocking the name of it, Moldapiravir. Um, yeah, so but uh, it's funny. I, um, I, I, now I guess we can say out loud we were using hydroxychloroquine at the beginning. Doctors were using it because it had no adverse effect, and there was some bench work that suggested it might be helpful. So we reached for it because there was no reason not to in case it did help while we figured out the science. And let's be clear. I was doing my uh, MKSAP. Do you get pulmonologists do MKSAPs too? The board, uh, board yeah. reviews? Yeah. Yeah. So I was doing my MKSAP right in the middle of the pandemic thing. And the rheumatology questions in there had, should you keep uh, this pregnant woman on hydroxychloroquine? She had mild lupus or something. And the answer was, yes, it's the only, it's the only medication I'm aware of that categorically women should, it's so safe and so inert, they should stay on it during pregnancy. Yeah, certainly I have a lot of patients. I do a lot of sarcoidosis and interstitial lung disease uh, that are affiliated with some autoimmune conditions like rheumatoid arthritis or lupus. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have many people on hydroxychloroquine, you know, for years, uh, long term. It requires some yeah. monitoring for the yeah. eyes, but overall, it's safe and uh, tolerated you know, certainly yeah. long, long term. I think, yeah. though, in Over critical decades, care decades. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. In critical care medicine, though, we've kind of 
you know, with time and just as we've, as we study so much in critical care over the last, you know, decade plus or so, you know, a less is more approach seems to consistently benefit patients, at least in the ICU. If you're so sick, it may not take much to kind of tip you over into a, a poor direction, which is kind of shown in other parts of, of critical care. Uh, but I think overall, mm. hydroxychloroquine, I think on the surface to an outpatient immune conditions, I mean, very safe. We have many patients on it long term. Um, but yeah, but that was kind of the only thing we really used without having it was a slop studies. Shot. Yeah, yeah, it was it was a slop shot, and I and so and some, I I uh, accidentally used used steroids. Not accidentally. I thought I was treating something else. I had a patient with frequent exacerbations of emphysema and pneumonias and things, and she responds to antibiotic and steroids. Uh, she got sick. Seemed like her usual syndrome. I put her on steroids and her usual antibiotics, and she was positive. And she did very, very well. And she shouldn't have. She was 75 years old. She was with emphysema. And just having the steroids started right away, I, I, it caught my attention. This, this was back in the during the nuclear winter we were talking about. And I thought, I think steroids make a difference. I think they do. Yeah, and timing of steroids has always been, uh, you know, important also because because too late it might harm you. I mean, too early before you're really sick might reduce your initial kind of immune response. So, yeah, so timing of it seems to be everything, and the studies have kind of showed that uh, uh, as well. It's just kind of blunting some of that that immune response. Now, again, a lot of still even a lot of the highest risk patients early on go have mild disease and, you know, and go on to live even without, you know, any intervention. So there is a big sure. luck component. Sure. I, you know, why do oh, two yeah, people yeah. who look oh, exactly yeah. the same on paper take different courses? It's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. it's very weird. Um, back to, uh, let's say I have a bunch of little questions there I want to get to. Uh, oh, somebody, a couple quick questions off the restream here. Uh, any, have you seen anything you're using that predicts any medications that are more likely to be associated with long COVID? That wow. I, 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 we, don't, we unfortunately don't know too much about long COVID, but I don't know about any associations, uh, you know, of being on prior medicine that might make you susceptible to it. I know there's just a ton more, exponentially more questions than answers uh, in long COVID. Um, I do see some of them in my pulmonary office, you know, people who are short of breath long after mild COVID that didn't even require a hospital, but with completely normal pulmonary testing and imaging. Um, so it, it is a big challenge. We're slowly learning more. You know, there's probably, you know, an immune component. We think autonomic dysfunction and perhaps some small fiber neuropathy might be a component. We just we, we just know so little uh, about uh, long COVID, but I certainly in my outpatient practice see a lot of patients post-COVID just short of breath with completely normal pulmonary testing and no response to inhaled medications. It's, um, it's, very, it's a head scratcher for all very specialists. Weird. And somebody else asked me, they had mild COVID and ended up with a um, pulmonary fibrosis. Are you seeing that? I, I, I understand it in severe COVID, but are you seeing that in mild COVID? Yeah, mild COVID, not not often. Um, you know, it, it, it is rare. Now, you can have a pneumonia, a pneumonitis, a lung inflammation, and maybe not need much oxygen. Um, and then you may heal. So I, I hate admitting this as a lung doctor, but we don't need most of our lungs. Uh, you know, in fact, people with severe you know, fibrosis or emphysema will sometimes transplant one lung uh, and they do they do very well. So you can damage and scar a part of your lung after any kind of pneumonia and not have any residual symptoms. And it's just incidentally found on follow-up imaging. Uh, but yeah, I think for mild outpatient disease to then have a clinically significant scarring, 
where you're still symptomatic afterwards is very uh, atypical. I, I don't see that in my office much. It's usually the severe people who are quite ill in the hospital who then have a post-infectious uh, fibrosis noted on scan. Right. And, and, that, and that happens in any ARDS patient. So maybe we ought to back right. up and, and talk about, yeah, maybe we ought to talk about, tell people what ARDS is and what was, what's different about the COVID ARDS. Yeah, so, so ARDS is a, a acute uh, respiratory distress syndrome. Um, or, and so it's essentially a non-specific term that encompasses severe respiratory failure when you've got both lungs inflamed for whatever reason and you're requiring lots of oxygen. Uh, most of the time it's for people on ventilators, but there are people who can be on very high flows of oxygen who uh, kind of meet the criteria and cut off. So historically, you know, pneumonia, uh, I mean, uh, and, and that it can be due to heart failure. You know, heart failure itself can cause, mm -hmm. you know, both lungs to look infected. And fluid I, in the I, lungs. I always so, thought about it as something that, that caused uh, alveolar filling with inflammatory fluid. Typically inflammatory, so exactly. with heart failure could be any fluid. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you have a little sac, you have little air sacs. Yeah, your little air sacs in your lungs are like clusters of grapes. Those are your air sacs. And in when the lining of the alveoli get inflamed, they just like if you were to scrape your arm and fluid comes out, same thing happens in the lung and it fills the alveoli. They can't be used then to exchange oxygen. And because they're inflamed, they get sick, they get stiff, and then they get scarring. Is that about right? Exactly. That okay. Exactly. And yeah, yeah that, that's perfect. Uh, you know, the, the, just a lot of inflammatory gunk kind of fills up the spaces where air should be. It's usually due to infection yeah. or sepsis, uh, but also like pancreatitis, trauma, you know, other things, you know, anything that rips inflammation through the body, everything gets filtered through the lungs. Um, and then, and then uh, but it, can, it ultimately makes the lungs very stiff. And this can be a big problem when you have someone on a ventilator and you have stiff lungs, you're blowing air in and they're just going to the few healthy alveoli, the few healthy air sacs. Um, and then by concentrating that air on those few healthy air sacs, they're at risk of getting inflamed and, uh, and damaged further. And that's where it was kind of in, in COVID at least, which we've been using a lot, which we've used a little bit in ARDS before, is kind of prone position ventilation, which really means flip people on their stomach for 16 hours a day or so. Um, you know, most of our surface area of our lungs is on our back and we're laying on our back and fluid and inflammatory gunk fills up. Um, you know, those are a lot of big areas that oxygen cannot be absorbed through. So by flipping patients on their stomach, gravity opens up that part of the lungs um, and really helps kind of more alveoli, kind of spare them a little bit from just being uh, uh, drowning in, in those inflammatory cells um, and it allows the oxygenation right. to improve. And that's really something we've been using a lot um, just because of the severity of respiratory failure that people have developed in COVID. And 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 uh, I want to swing back around to the the uh, cytokine thing again, but just so people understand that the the art of ICU medicine is you're you're trying to I want to make it specific what what Dr. Cabazzo was saying, which is if you send too much oxygen in, you damage the lungs. So you have very few alveolar left. You need the oxygen going in there, but if you too high a flow, damage the lungs. You have a stiff lung, too high a pressure, damage the lungs. And it's this balancing act of creating, you know, enough positive pressure going in, the right amount of end expiratory pressure, the right amount of oxygen flow. The, it's sort of this weird balancing act you're doing. I, I used to think of it as sort of hour by hour. I would try to, maybe I'm, exactly. maybe that's a mistake to adjust, adjust things so much, but I used to always try to adjust things in all the time. I didn't like leaving things be. 
No, you're 100% right. It shouldn't be a change the ventilator on rounds at 8 a.m. and then don't touch it until tomorrow. You know, the compliance no, and no. stiffness of people's lungs changes, um, you know, pr- pretty regularly. And too much tidal volume can hurt lungs. Too little can hurt lungs. Too much oxygen hurts lungs. Too little oxygen hurts lungs. The rate we breathe uh, that we set the ventilator at can, you know, affects uh, uh, quite a bit. And then that peak, that positive pressure, the amount of constant air that's blowing in and inflating the lungs, too much of that can be harmful and too little of that. So there's a lot of tweaking and fine tuning that should occur multiple right. times a day uh, to try to find that sweet spot because the lung stiffness is going to change as people heal or as they worsen. Um, so things always need to be adjusted. I think hour to hour is, is I mean, that's ideal, but definitely multiple times yeah. a day. I, I, used to, I used to hang out in the ICU an awful lot. So, so back to the... Um, Back to the uh, cytokine inhibitors. Uh, do you first do inflammatory marking tests? Do you do uh, CRPs or what, what are you doing for inflammatory markers? Yeah, so pretty much uh, CRPs and D-dimer are, are checked on the on the front end and kind of, you know, every, uh, for the first couple of days, almost daily until there's kind of a trajectory, then it kind of backs down a little bit. Um, you know, interestingly, in other kinds of, of infections, we don't really check inflammatory markers. So I, I, I'm not no. sure how that... Historically, I'm going to pre- I, I predict you I predict you will be in the future. I think this will change a little bit of ICU medicine. You'll, you'll cite a, I, I yeah. bet cytokine storm or cytokine activation is more around than we knew. Yeah, I agree. Because if we checked a lot of our severe sepsis patients or ARDS for mm-hmm. other reasons and followed them, I mean, we might learn mm-hmm. quite a bit more. And even just prior to COVID, we were getting a lot of our ARDS, you know, steroid data, some of which we're extrapolating mm-hmm. now, where kind of more mm-hmm. immune suppression early on in, in ARDS is probably going to be helping the lungs long term. So yeah, CRP and D-dimer are checked early on. For some reason, a lot of people's blood, it gets pretty thick. Uh, in COVID, and we do see quite a bit of clots, um, which is is really like nothing I, I've ever seen before from a, a thrombogenic uh, process. Um, and so that D-dimer can help us have a clue of what dose of anticoagulation should we use to try to prevent clots, or is our suspicion going to be high of active clots? So that helps with trying to keep the blood thin. But the CRP helps play a role in when would we add some of the uh, you know tocilizumab or some of the uh, immunomodulators where we fa- that gets factored in by uh, the infection disease doctors and the kind of the protocols they use. Yeah, the clotting story is yet to be told as far as I'm concerned. It, it is something with the spike protein and the endothelium. We're looking at the platelet part, I know, but th- there's something more going on here than that is a little, it's weird. And uh, yeah, I think we have we'll no one day have some sort of, it's, yeah, we'll have some sort of specific something for that because the, the anticoagulants don't work the way they should. And that's telling you something that that's, says something. Uh, oh, and, and by the way, I, I, I look at the, the vaccines and the, the platelet consumptions and the clotting and all the, there's something about that spike protein that's doing something that we're going to figure out eventually. So when, when you were, when we were in the throes of all this, you know, I, I was always very hopeful that the medical system, nobody in the world adjusts and flexes up and figures out ways of dealing with really sick patients and coming up with novel therapeutics and vaccines than this country. Were you hope I, I just knew we'd come up with stuff. I didn't know how long it would take. I, I figured it'd be pretty quick. It was about on the time course I figured. Were you hopeful at the beginning? Yeah, I think from a, I was hopeful really from a vac- vaccine, I was always kind of optimistic uh, and hopeful that we'd eventually get to a point where we'll have a good vaccine that I can be a little less worried 
uh, when I'm at work and kind of around my family and, and all that. I was very skeptical about would anything else help? You know, I think our strongest weapon, and it still is, is to not get infected or avoid the virus. Um, not practical unless you live in a bubble. And that's not, I mean, you know, that's not really uh, realistic uh, either. So, so the vaccines certainly have been very helpful at preventing getting infection. But I was not really uh, optimistic that we would find really much helpful stuff in the way of immune modulators. You know, I feel like once the train has mm. left the tracks, it seems so hard to, to stop. And that was kind of my early on thoughts. And mm. especially that, you know, yeah. May and June, I'll tell you, the number of people, they were dropping like flies and it was really hard emotionally where I just felt like, I mean, it's just, how are we going to get through this? Um, and then, you know, that summer was therapeutic. You know, I'm, not, I'm a pretty uh, relaxed, easygoing guy. That kind of brought me to critical care. Uh, pretty resilient. Yeah. and But I was hit with emotions that I've never really experienced before. Uh, mm. In June, I really hit a wall mm. emotionally. I'm not a burnout guy. I, you know, I really uh, very even keel and take care of myself. Uh, uh, but that was a really weird feeling for me as somebody who doesn't really... Um, you know, lose, lose sleep uh, from ICU care. You know, I, I, it's just, I've never seen that volume of death and I really hit a wall emotionally. And I just think, you know, I was always hopeful for a vaccine, but I wasn't very optimistic that any therapeutic would be helpful. Um, but, but thankfully we have amazing scientists, you know, doing the job where, you know, we are finding more and more stuff and really the antiviral that you referenced earlier. I mean, that, I mean, on paper seems so promising and exciting and I hope and I hope that pans yeah. out to be something as well. Me too. Me too. You never know until we can start using it. Um, somebody asked, Regeneron says, is it possible it could interfere? No, apparently Regeneron in their package insert or something says, possibly could interfere with your body's own body's ability to fight off future interferon of SARS-CoV-2, infection of uh, SARS-CoV-2. Um, that was uh, Shawnee J. That was early concerns. I, I don't think people have concerns about that anymore. I mean, there there, yeah, there I, may I, be some. Uh, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I actually spoke to an infection disease doctor just about this a, a couple of days ago, uh, where you know these are targeted monoclonal antibodies, so they're not like a, the diffuse uh, antibodies that are produced in the face of an infection. So the ones that are infused are really targeted. Uh, uh, so so they not they do not seem to affect your kind of big picture immunity. Because my question was, well, if you get monoclonal antibodies, is your natural immunity weaker? than if you did not That's get right. them. And, right. and I've been reassured right. my uh, colleagues, yeah, infectious disease, that that would not be the case, just because it's a very targeted monoclonal antibody. It doesn't really affect the I, I can also production. tell you, I, I as an N of one here, I'm an N of one, uh, I had monoclonal antibodies day five, literally improved during the infusion. I now get regular comprehensive antibody profiles, including um, uh, neutralizing antibody measurements. And I'm way up, way, way, way up. I'm one of those people that have stayed up and just crazy up. So it clearly had no effect on anything. Yeah. And it's not felt to, yeah, based on kind of what the, what the experts, uh, say my colleagues, uh, infectious disease here, yeah, should not affect at all your, your natural immunity, uh, beyond that. And, and so I'm going to swing back one more time in the JAK inhibitors, the JAK inhibitor, the baricitinib and the toxaluzumab. Uh, are you, is that only for ICU medicines now, or do you think we're ever going to back that to try to keep people out of the ICU? Um, well, right now, I mean, a lot of non-ICU patients are getting it now. Also, if you qualify, you know, if you got, cause you Good. can be, have, you can have respiratory failure and still be on the floor. You can have six liters. I mean, you know, there are a whole, until you're on really high flow oxygen, really up to 15 liters, you can still be maintained on the floor. So you really just need to be in some kind of respiratory failure. 
Uh, and you'd qualify if your institution has baricitinib, you know, that should be our kind of first thing to add on to dexamethasone. Luckily, what we're finding out is that because places that don't have baricitinib or tocilizumab um, are, you know, higher dose dexamethasone is probably going to be very helpful in those patients who cannot get that extra immune modulator um, based on High, some Higher of the dose meaning studies. what? Higher dose, what, what, num- what, so, uh, so that, how much are you talking about? Yeah, so dexamethasone right now, everyone kind of who's on oxygen gets six milligrams a day for 10 days. Um, so it seems like right. for people with mild to moderate disease, if they don't have access to tocilizumab or baricitinib, 12 milligrams a day is probably going to be much better. Uh, but if you also have severe ARDS and don't have access, 20 milligrams for uh, five days and then 10 milligrams for five days after that in the severe ARDS people. And that's from data in a study that came out just before COVID and uh, severe ARDS you know, in non-COVID patients that seemed to kind of really help the lungs short-term and longer-term by suppressing uh, uh, inflammation and, and kind of a lot of that inflammatory drive early on. I, I'm really concerned about the lack of attention to the to keeping people out of the hospital. I mean, that should have been public health priority one, and they they just dropped the ball completely on educating people how to use telemedicine, what monoclonal antibodies are. You just heard CNN reported yesterday that this is uh, Keith Showard is reminding me that doctors are the many doctors are unaware about what monoclonal antibodies are, how they're used, which is stunning to me. That is absolutely stunning. But why not, so, so the way you're describing the Decadron Therapeutics, why not uh, give everyone with progressive moderate disease 12 milligrams a day for three days, then drop them down to six? Uh, you mean outside the hospital or inpatient? Correct, correct. Keep somebody out. Keep somebody out, because you're saying 12 works pretty well. I'm thinking, more. if somebody's progressing and they're outpatient, I really want to hit them. Let's do it for three days and then drop them down to six for the rest. Yeah, so certainly at least my population is mostly, you know, I'm seeing the sick people in the hospital on respiratory failure. I don't think it's really been studied as, uh, or I don't know of at least the studies from the outpatient uh, side there, because I know in a lot of steroid studies in general, and even some of the ones w- with COVID, there were some small groups that maybe had harmed by by having steroids. Uh, you know, so there is, you know, as you know, they're, they're not benign, they're great medicines and they can help a lot of stuff, yeah. but they've got to use at the right time you know, right doses, but I don't know specific studies from the outpatient side, but I do know that budesonide or inhaled corticosteroids um, have been studied as outpatients and they seem to to blunt severity of illness, probably by a similar mechanism of steroid targeted right into the lungs. Um, and, and my population right. is a little bit skewed because most of my outpatients are on inhaled corticosteroids um, uh, as well as just being of asthma or uh, in a subset of the COPD patients. Um, so there certainly seems to be a role to to some steroids early on. So my patients who have lung disease, who yeah. develop COVID as a patient, I put them on steroids, um, just more kind of more try to protect for their lung disease from inflaming or uh, yeah. uh, exacerbating because no, people normally which is which is what that. we do, which is what we do every time our lung patients get an infection. <laughs> That's what we do with other stuff too. I mean, it's just what we do. Uh, and and yeah. I, and I, there's a lot of chatter here about decadron versus methylprednisolone. I'm not sure there's anything magic about decadron. I mean, you can use methylprednisolone or, or prednisone, it seems to me. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you just kind of convert it to the equivalent uh, uh, yeah. dosing. I think just, you know, when yeah. the, the studies, you know, they use decadron. So if we have it, we use it. Uh, but in settings, you know, if you don't have it, I mean, there's certainly, uh, there's no reason they should really behave differently. Um, so that is acceptable if you don't have uh, access to decadron. 
So when we get back, I'm going to take a little break. When we get back, uh, we'll talk about where we're at now with COVID, where we see things are going. I may take a few calls off Clubhouse. Susan, our restream has been uh, adulterated. Speaking of adulterations. Uh, yeah, I just fix. blocked the guy Good. on Facebook. Well done. And uh, there's just somebody putting these long diatribes yeah. on there that are being I mean, cut and pasted in. You can do in. it once, but yeah. 12 times. Yeah. No thanks. Yeah. So uh, again, uh, you're, uh, Dr. Cabaza, is there a, a website or anything you want to refer people to uh, during the break here? Uh, website in terms of, uh, uh, for me, no, I, I have no, uh, I have no website, but certainly Cleveland Clinic, we have a lot of resources up of just the most up-to-date practices right. in COVID and what right. we do and what, what you can expect at our hospital. Perfect. All right. We'll get back to more. We're, again, we're going to sort of bring us, we've been talking about the background, our experience, what we're thinking about medically with all this. And uh, interestingly, zero disagreement between us on how to how to deal with this or what we experienced, frankly, in the early stages of this thing. Uh, I feel exactly the way you did. And uh, let's uh, talk more about where we are now after the break. Here with my daughter, Paulina, to share an exciting new project. Over the years, we've talked to a ton of young people about what they really want to know about relationships. It's difficult to know who you are and what you want, especially mm. as a teenager. And not everyone has access to an expert in their house like I did. Of course, it wasn't like I was always that receptive to that advice. Right. No kidding. But now we have written the book on consent. It is called It Doesn't Have to Be Awkward, and it explores relationships, romantic relationships, and sex. It's a great guide for teens, parents, and educators to go beyond the talk and have honest and meaningful conversations. It Doesn't Have to Be Awkward will be on sale September 21st. You can order your book anywhere books are sold. Mm -hmm. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, and of course, your independent local bookstore. Links are available on drdrew.com. So pre-ordering the book will help people, well, raise awareness, obviously, and it'll get that conversation going early so more people can can notice this and spread the word of positivity about healthy relationships. So if you can, we would love your support by pre-ordering now. Totally. And as we said before, this is a book that both teenagers and their parents should read. Read the book, have the conversation. It doesn't have to be awkward. On sale, September 21st. So there's a lot of uh, questions on the restream about what to do with long COVID. Go to covidlonghaulers.com. The, the reason I got on to the cytokine activation syndrome early on in the, in the pandemic was I was communicating with lots of different doctors across the country. I heard about it week one. I'd never, it, it, I knew what people were describing. I'd never heard of such a thing. And I, so I immediately started looking into it. And it was when we came across Dr. Yo and Dr. Bruce Patterson, who were doing research on lorandamab, which is a CCL5, am I saying that right? CCR, CCL5, yeah, CCL5 inhibitor, that I started sort of coming to an understanding of where the different, um, I, I just call them immune modulators, might be of use. And I started hearing from other ICU specialists. Toxaluzumab was an early one that people started getting into. Steroids, of course, were early ones. So I felt very grateful to have sort of seen this thing uh, evolve from from the early days. And uh, it's interesting to me that we're still sort of, we've sort of come back again to kind of a similar place with it. But let, let's not talk about that. Let's talk about where we are now. H how do you feel about where we are now in terms of, I guess I should frame this as moving from pandemic to endemic. Are we there? H are we uh, still, you know, in, in uh, Ohio, maybe you're... Um, I don't know what Ohio's like. In California, it's still like we're imprisoned uh, and people are very big on virtue signaling and wearing masks. There was a study that came out you'll like that uh, looked at Stanford students riding bicycles. 
what percentage were wearing a helmet versus what percentage were wearing a mask. Outdoors, riding a bike, 60% mask, 20% helmet. So the insanity of what we're getting into in terms of our sort of primitive relationship with this virus and our panic porn that we're still steeped in concerns me a big deal, at least in this state. Where do you think we're at with this move from pandemic to endemic? Yeah, I'll tell you, all my guesses have pretty much been wrong to date. Um, and I'm just, <laughs> I'm yeah, not really enough. been smart enough to have really any uh, accurate guess. I mean, I thought we were out of the woods in, in July. You know, I mean, it, our numbers, and we had less than 200 cases a day. I actually went to a comedy club. I mean, uh, Louis C.K. was doing a, a small show at a club here. And I was, this was our first time I went out really to a setting like that since the pandemic started. And it was kind of weird, but I felt very comfortable. I'm vaccinated. Uh, uh, and there's so few cases in the state. Fast forward four or five weeks, I wouldn't go back to that same show. And that's how quickly things have changed. Delta kind of changed everything for me. I mean, I, I felt, you know, yeah, we're not at herd immunity, but we did good enough that, you know, our numbers are so low. And I think we're going to get into that endemic phase that, that we're all kind of longing for. Uh, but Delta really changed so much of what I saw and how I was thinking. And now that Delta, at least in Ohio, our last kind of six weeks, um, eight weeks or so, been really scary, almost December, January-like scary in terms of volumes and not able to accept new patients to our ICU. I mean, we're the Cleveland Clinic. We take care of so many patients around uh, the region who get flown in uh, to us to give more advanced intensive care. Sometimes people are flown in from other states even, but we couldn't even take in patients from a hospital you know, 20 minutes away because of how full our ICU would. I never imagined, looking back December, January, that we would be at that point again. So Delta humbled me even further um, where I, it's just it's just really a, a day at a time approach, but these I did not expect to ever be at capacity like we were the last couple months. And, and the stories, unfortunately, have just been sadder and sadder that we see uh, in the ICU. So as we're now coming down on our Delta surge, I'm very hopeful, optimistic. Hopefully, this was the worst of it, and we'll never have a any kind of surge like that again. But you know, I don't know what variant might be around the corner. I don't know, but I'm happy when things are going down and. And I think the worst of these last two months is behind us, although our numbers are still quite high, but definitely uh, coming down and less influx than we had. Uh, but I have been wrong about most of my yeah. thoughts and predictions. Yeah, I, I, the only thing that keeps me up at night is the idea that we'll come up with some variant that gets around the vaccine or gets around immunity. Even a little bit, we'll have a massive, we would have a big problem then. And uh, unless... Molnupiravir really works, or any of the other antivirals that are coming, in which case uh, that could change everything. It really could change everything, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I also worry about the therapeutics. You know, vaccines don't cause, don't put the same kind of evolutionary pressures on a virus that the therapeutics do. Therapeutics, we, you and I know that pathogens of all types, because of the evolutionary pressure of a single agent therapeutic, the pathogens find a way around it whether it's plasmid acquisition or viral viral uh, genetic uh, mutation, whatever it is, pathogens have an uncanny ability to figure out a way to get around our, our therapeutics, which is why I'm hoping they very quickly come up with a second one. But I can't imagine a therapeutic causing a more virulent strain of, of the pathogen. Do you, can you? I mean, it, from I mean, with Delta kind of really shook me a bit. I mean, in terms Scared of you. how contagious. Scared you, yeah. yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, and I've never, I think early on when I started ICU week in the COVID ICU, and I saw there was a 30-year-old in the ICU, without looking, I can almost tell you their BMI is probably above 35, 40, and they're diabetic. You know, so young people in the ICU early on were almost always had, you know, either obesity, diabetes, some kind of risk factor that, you know, I could predict before opening their chart. That has all changed with Delta the last couple of months. I and mean, I see young pe- people my age and younger who look like me, uh, who are, I'm putting on ventilators uh, in the ICU. And I'm, you know, I innovated a, a young man who's exactly my age, uh, you know, th- three months ago or so. He had three daughters like myself. Um, and when I, and I put them on the ventilator um, and before vaccines, I used to lay at night at home wondering, are my daughters one day going to hear of me on a ventilator? Um, but, mm. but, you know, I wasn't seeing a lot of people who looked like me on ventilators, uh, prior, mm-hmm. but post, you know, these last couple months, you know, so I see that, but because of vaccines, I'm so confident that that will not be me that I don't, I don't lose sleep. Like I used to wondering if I'm next because of vaccines, but seeing right. young help, relatively healthy parents, um, get very sick and knowing young kids are losing parents has been a really hard part of the last couple of months that I, uh, I did not really see coming just from our experiences in the first, you know, uh, chunk of the pandemic. You know, the other thing we haven't talked about, and this isn't your organ system, but I imagine you've seen a fair bit of this, is the neurological effects of this illness. I I, I kept saying, you know, I, I had a pretty bad case, and I just kept saying this this is what a bad head injury feels like. This is this is a, if I'd been in a car accident or got hit with a baseball bat, this is exactly what I would be like. Um, what are your thoughts on the neurological effects? Yeah, and certainly even for mild outpatients, the way they describe that headache, almost like a pitchfork through the skull, is really the description we get so often, um, you know, from the outpatient side. And even the mild patients, they get this brain fog. You know, it does something mm-hmm. to the wiring of the brain where, where people are off, let alone, you know, the, the severe headaches. Um, and, and even like for me, after my second vaccine, I had a really bad uh, headache, you know, for that you know, few days or so. I mean, there's uh, there's something about the uh, immune response that's affecting our wiring uh, and our central nervous system a bit, let alone, you know, I, the strokes think, and the vascular. Think, yeah, yeah. I think, I tell you what I think, because uh, I, a lot of the the pathology that has been examined shows a lot of microvascular damage. And my bet is, so it's also why people get a little weird from the vaccine, that once again, it's something to do with the spike protein and the endothelium of the cerebral vasculature causing something some microvascular something and and that's what it, it feels like a diffuse microvascular something you know and you and of course your brain gets injured by that uh, and uh, it generally comes back but after a certain age probably not you know may, maybe not yeah there seems to be a component of that certainly for some patients similarly to the lungs and some people you see kind of those micro thromboses it's not everyone uh, but but what's also unique you know you know from your time in the ICU ICU delirium is so common uh, and so serious, and and you know there's so many layers and things we could talk about on that standpoint. But for some reason, patients who get COVID and critical illness have a denser delirium compared to patients with other uh, infections that lead them yeah. in the ICU. Yeah, and, and the delirium is it's just it's been so odd that part of it. Yeah. Well, do you are you putting them on propofol? Are you paralyzing them? Or is, is that you, it seemed like you were doing that at the beginning? Are you backed off that? How, what, what's going on there? 
Well, I think our paralyzing is really mainly occurring in people with severe uh, refractory hypoxemia before we end up proning them is generally when we're paralyzing. So if they're hypoxic, despite being on 100% oxygen and they're optimized on the vent, we paralyze them and wipe out the oxygen utilization from their muscles to help. And then we'll kind of flip them on their stomach for 16 hours and, you know, for the lung recruitment uh, that we had talked about earlier. Still now we've kind of gone back to our basic uh, sedation uh, approach. It's really no different than non-COVID patients now, and we just try to keep sedation at a minimum, you know, keep them on either, you know, propofol or Presidex or ketamine drips, and then just some as-needed fentanyl here and there. Less sedation across the board is better in critical care, but especially as little as you can get away with in these COVID patients who already are so prone to a really bad delirium, uh, will help try to minimize time on a ventilator and hopefully minimize the number of people who need tracheostomies. Yeah, personally, you can give me the uh, propofol. I'll tell you, that'd be just fine. If I'm going to be on a vent, go ahead, put me to sleep. All right, let's take a couple of calls. We, uh, again, I'm watching you all on uh, the restream. We're trying to get at those questions you guys very kindly put up there. Uh, we're also in Clubhouse. I, hands are up. I'm going to get some callers there in a second. And just a reminder that you will be uh, out on Twitch, Twitter, Facebook, uh, restream, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Facebook, Rumble, and YouTube, if you come up to the podium here. So let's see if I can get... Arizona wife, it looks like, uh, if I'm getting that that name correct. Uh, AZ wife 480. Let's see if he or she can come up. There we are. Janice, how are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you. Um, I was just wondering if you guys could give any information on if these mRNA vaccines were in development for so long, because I've heard that they've been in development for decades, why would they announce as a possibility when talk of the vaccine was first being discussed? The, my understanding, I'll let Dr. Cabaza answer this in a second, but my, my recollection is uh, as soon as everyone turned towards the manufacturer, the buzz I heard was, the mRNA vaccines can, are the only ones that can be scaled up fast enough. Let's get on that immediately because they could be scaled so much more quickly than everything else. Uh, they just got on it and they were right. They, they, they were they were quick to bring to market. Dr. Kabaza, what do you say? Yeah, I'm certainly not an expert in kind of the the back, uh, the, the origins from, from vaccines, but my general, I mean, mRNA technology is something that has been studied really since the early um, early 90s. And I think SARS, and I don't know if SARS was in 2003 or or for, you know, whenever SARS was, I think that put kind of a scare in a lot of the, the public health uh, scientists and, and in the lab, because if this thing spread, a lot of people were going to die. Uh, so my understanding, and SARS, which is a cousin of, of COVID-19, um, is where they kind of start, all right, well, we may need to try to figure out a, a vaccine here if this thing gets out of hand. And that's kind of where I think the original foundations and, and framework and basis uh, came from. But SARS kind of outsmarted itself. You know, it killed people so quickly that you couldn't really transmit it to a lot of people. You know, you got SARS and you were kind of dead quickly uh, afterwards. So you couldn't really have this pandemic level uh, outbreak. So my understanding was that that's when a lot of kind of COVID related, or at least a, 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 that SARS, you know, cousin of COVID-19, uh, that kind of foundation was starting to set. And then, you know, signs that they're always trying to uh, work on things over the years and refine them and make them better. So I think I think if this pandemic happened before SARS, I imagine we'd be waiting a little bit longer 
uh, for a vaccine, but I certainly am not a vaccine expert of kind of the origins, but that's kind of my general. Well, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm with you. I, yeah, I'm with you. I just sort of saw it happen and heard, I, you know, from communicating with peers and things of people in virology, uh, my understanding, but we could get, Susan, maybe we get Dr. Knock back at some point to get more detail about that. But um, I had been hearing about yeah. MRA technologies for cancer for quite some time. And what was holding it back is the same thing holds everything back, which is market forces and the expense of phase three trials. I mean, to, to get enough people with a particular diagnosis and to do the studies and do them properly and long enough cost hundreds of millions of dollars. And they just, it takes forever. It just takes them forever. And, and this, this you know, the good thing about the pandemic, it sped a lot of stuff up that uh, normally takes uh, years to decades. Okay, because I was just wondering why we hadn't heard about the technology until well, much we, into we, we had. vaccine we had. development. No, no, we had for sure. We had for sure um, as physicians. But Janice, are you in Arizona right now? Yes, I am. We had we came back from Phoenix yesterday and had the worst experience of our life. Susan, you want to ring in on this? Everybody on race means, how are you today? We Susan? we literally I'm like, Janice I'm having PTSD. We visited our trip. We visited friends in in uh, Sedona, lovely part of your gracious state, and the Arizonans were wonderful. But we flew. You had to do that drive down to Phoenix and then got in a plane, and we're literally to Sedona. Oh. Phoenix we, to Sedona. Yeah, and then Phoenix to Burbank. We were on approach to Burbank, and the captain comes on the speaker and goes, oh, we're going back to Phoenix. And I was like, what? We were like, we were literally landing, and they just took us back. And so we spent the uh, day at, uh, what, Sky Ranch? What's the name of the Sky airport? Harbor. Sky Harbor. Sky Harbor. Sky Harbor. Sky Harbor. And trying so to get our luggage We got a big, a big uh, our dose luggage of, came at the beginning Phoenix of Phoenix yesterday. So thank you for uh, the for the Arizonans and, and their their. A lovely demeanor. We appreciate it. And no thank you day. to America. Well, Airlines. we have, hey, anytime, you're always welcome. Well, thank you. We, I, I got that sense. I got that sense about Arizona. So thank you. Uh, okay. Uh, let's get another call going here. Uh, Josh, if he wants to come up. Dr. Drew. Yeah, there you are. Um, I I enjoyed you. Uh, I enjoyed this conversation and especially the neurological part at the end, even though it's not the specialty of the guest. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, um, it's sort of like a brain brain fog I've heard. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to tie that into what your specialty is, which is addiction. Mm -hmm. And especially the, the clarity that comes when you have a moment of change mm -hmm. in your addiction and how that relates to the rest of the time. Well, I, I can't moments of change. Hmm. I, 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 I don't really I don't equate these two things in my head, but they are worthy of sort of describing. So COVID is a global a diffuse injury like a head injury, right? It's it's a it's a neurological injury. It may have a exactly what's being injured and how we're all sort of trying to figure that out. But it is a you know widespread global injury to the central nervous system, which is more uh, along the lines of post-concussive syndromes, dementias, th things like that. Um, the moment of change, in my experience, is essentially people who are in a disease, psychiatric illness, that have prominent what's called anisognosia. Anisognosia, Joe, is essentially, you remember it from uh, left-sided neglect syndromes from your, you know, 
back in the days when you were seeing um, middle right middle cerebral artery strokes, and you get a left sided neglect, right? Anisognosia. Yeah. 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 So anisognosia, we have now sort of co-opted that to describe really profound denial that has sort of a has really kind of a neurological basis to it, where people frontal lobes aren't functioning right and they and they have anisognosia about their schizophrenia, about their manias, about their addictions. And with addiction, people are able to break through that anisognosia sometimes when they see themselves the way I describe it, literally through a new pair of glasses. Like they they start to have some sort of relationship with another person and they're able to see that person's experience of themselves reflected back to them sufficiently that they gain an ability to push through their denial and they kind of see themselves as they are and they'll have these moments of clarity and go, holy shit, I got to do something about this. Now, that's sort of how I commonly see those things. They're very, very different things, but very interesting things. Uh, if anybody else on Clubhouse wants to come to the podium again, you can raise your hand. I will bring you up. And uh, if you do raise your hand, you will be uh, out here on uh, Rumble and YouTube and uh, Twitch Dr. and Twitter. Does Dr. Kavaza have time to stay or is he? Uh, we have, a, I, my schedule says about seven more minutes. Is that okay with you, Joseph? Yeah, of course, yep. Yeah. So if there if there may not be any more questions, frankly, I'm just uh, allowing people the chance to raise their hand if they wish. And I'm also looking. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit. This is a, a somewhat out of our uh, field, which is vaccines and boosters. Um, I, I talked to Monica Gandhi about natural immunity and vaccines. I think the reasons we're telling everybody to get vaccines if you have natural immunity is about 30% of people lose that natural immunity and we don't have a standardized way to measure what that is, you know, when somebody's immunity is no longer effective. So we just say, get the vaccine. It's safe enough, get it. The question is, should people get boosters uh, if they have natural immunity? That's kind of a more interesting question. Now, I had a, I had a terrible reaction to my Johnson Johnson vaccine and, and I have, fortunately, I'm doing the testing where I'm looking at my antibody profiles, but there is no standardized way to, to you know, it's not like, the, you know, serum sodium should be 135 to 140, right? We don't have a standardized range like that for, for our immunity. What do you think about that? And I think that's really been the big challenge really throughout is, you know, in a lot of other diseases, you know, we, we follow antibodies and titers and they help us have an idea how good our immunity is. We still don't know yet, you know, exactly like I said, those standardized numbers, what level is good enough, what level protects us, does it vary between strains, um, uh, who knows, but we you know, you know natural infection is very good, uh, you know, especially in the short run. I mean, it's, you know, I think early on yeah. pre-Delta, you know, I, I very rarely, I maybe could three patients I may have seen who've been reinfected between my outpatients yeah. and, and the many patients I take care of in the hospital. So still not very yeah. common. Yeah seem to probably be pretty good probably for at least six months but we just don't know in who and for how long and so right. kind of throughout this pandemic you know my views are that more immunity is better than less especially since we don't know what's around the corner from uh, variants or, or what have you and getting immunity the easy way is i think far preferred compared to uh rolling the dice and you know i will tell you even just a couple months ago i had a patient, young person, a couple years older than me, lives around the corner from me. I didn't know that, but took care of them in the hospital, um, had infection last winter, died of COVID uh, nine months later. Um, I have not Jeez. seen um, any, any young person in their 40s die of a breakthrough uh, infection who had been, uh, been vaccinated. And 
you know, and, and that's just an anecdotal story. That's just kind of one thing that catches my attention. But natural immunity is mm-hmm. probably very good for a reasonable time in, in a bunch of people. We just don't know who. And I think putting all your money in natural immunity when you have the, the access to get extra free immunity to give, you know, longer duration. I mean, I, you know, my bias is to take advantage of that free immunity, uh, you know, immunity the easy way, because I might, I'm really skewed. I'm seeing the worst of the worst. I'm seeing the people whose immune systems were not enough mm-hmm. uh, to keep them from getting very sick. So that's kind of my bias. If you fall to a category where boosters recommended, um, I definitely recommend getting it. I couldn't wait to get mine. Right. I, I, think, I agree. Yeah. See, I think that's the point is, is that immunity the easy your way. Risk, that's a good way your, of putting yeah, it. Assess your risk. And, and if you, I, I'm still trying to decide for myself. I, I, because I had such a nasty reaction to the vaccine, and I'm trying to decide which one. And, and, um, I, I kind of feel like J and J is probably my best bet. But I'm a little f- afraid of it, but, but I'm going to check my antibodies, and if they're going down, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to get another booster and see what, what's what. Uh, let's get another caller up here very quickly. Uh, Chad. Hey, Dr. Drew. How are you? Good, Chad. Good. I just wanted to let you know I got my Moderna booster yesterday. Um, I originally got Johnson and Johnson, and had absolutely no problem with it at all. Oh, that's good to hear. Did, did so, you did you have any reaction to the J and J at first? I did. The only thing I got from J and J was a uh, like a headache, pretty kind of moderate headache for the first maybe yeah. twelve hours, and then took some ibuprofen and it kind of went away. Well done. First time. Is that it? Yep. You're just announcing your Moderna success? No, I, okay. I have another question. Okay. I'm sorry. Um, my son who just got over having COVID, he's nine with asthma. Mm. Um, he made it through pretty good. Okay. My question is when they come out with these new shots for, you know, five to 11, Children. I think, mm-hmm. how long should I wait for with his natural immunity that he has right now? Cause he had really moderate symptoms. Dr. Kabaza, what do you say? Yeah, so I think what we now, I don't know the pediatric uh, population, but extrapolating, you know, to, sure. to adults, we say, you know, you can get it anytime, but it's almost unheard of to be reinfected within three months. Six so months. so then we say, yeah. Uh, okay. well, yeah, I mean, so we, we see it a little bit, uh, a couple kind of within six, but three months is definitely unheard of. Six months is probably on, yeah. you know, very low likelihood um, uh, in yeah. general. So, um, you know, you can get it any time, but I recommend it usually waiting at least, you know, three months, just then you get a little bit more shelf life from whatever the next immunity you build, where it will kind of be longer before right. it wanes. Um, so I don't know what, right. you know, again, definitely I, talk to pediatricians, please talk to pediatricians. We yeah. are not pediatricians and, and they may see things a little differently than we do. Um, you know, I, here, here's what happened to me with, uh, you'll love this with uh, Johnson and Johnson. I, I got sick. I got the full you know, I have a t- my immune system does not like viruses. I, I get everything like that. And, or vaccines. I had H1N1, catastrophe. I mean, that was actually worse. I was sicker from that. Uh, and I woke up on day two with a spontaneous, full-on raccoon's eye. And raccoon's eye is the presenting feature of transverse sinus thrombosis. <laughs> So I'm staring in the mirror going, holy shit, am I going to have to deal with a transverse sinus thrombosis from this damn vaccine? The only male to get a transverse sinus thrombosis <laughs> I had to put makeup on from, from the vaccine. So that's that why I'm worried up. about taking the, what's that? It cleared up. My eye cleared up, but I don't know. Maybe I had some mild. You walked around with a shiner Maybe I had some, some platelet consumption in my, you know, in the veins in the skull. Who knows? Uh, but, but it makes me nervous about the second J&J. Yeah. What do you say? 
I think that's natural. I mean, anyone who's had any kind of side effect to, to any of that, I mean, you're, you're going to be nervous about experiencing the same thing. Now, should I, I, should I get the second one? If I need the second one, should I get J&J or should I get Moderna? That's the question. I mean, I think with everything, as I, anything you get is going to be good. I mean, it's going to boost you and give you those that extra immunity. That's going to. I've seen some. Immunity. I've seen some studies that say the the J and J is has some some for some reason a little better for the uh, those with natural immunity. It just seems a little bit better. So I, I'm still thinking I'm going to take a second J and J, even spite of the raccoon's eyes. So yeah. like you win either way. It's a win-win situation. Yeah, well, I don't. I don't want an actual transverse sinus thrombosis. Thank you very much. Yeah, if I can avoid that, one. I'd like to. Uh, I. I'm so I know that the ill is the sensitivity to the spike protein. That's my deal. I'm very sensitive to that, and particularly neurologically, because I had lots of neurosymptoms. And um, well, maybe you just had it too soon after you were sick. No, nah, I think I waited six months. Or maybe I accidentally I? elbowed you. On well, my that sleep. could be because Susan. Maybe I, there could be some domestic violence involved, but we're not going to talk about that publicly. <laughs> so, so all right, Dr. Kavaza, we really appreciate you coming in and sharing your thoughts with us. Uh, anything we missed? Anything you thought we would get to that we didn't, or that you'd like to shine a little light on before you go? No, uh, no. I mean, I think we've kind of hit really a lot, a lot of the big points, and uh, you know, I could spend hours sharing just stories, uh, really at the bedside, but. Right. Still, our strongest weapon is to prevent getting infected, and we're very lucky that of how um, well these vaccines uh, have worked. And, and just walking in the hospital, I mean, it's um, it's it's really just a lot of suffering and people who who kind of wish they had more immunity prior uh, to that illness. And, and it's hard seeing human suffering. You know, even if uh, people may have chosen. Uh, made decisions that may have increased the odds of that is when you're looking at them and they're talking, these are some of the sweetest, nicest people um, and who just were kind of steered in, in a path that had them make a poor decision. And, um, you know, it's it, it's heartbreaking. And I think the less people we see suffer and in those positions, um, really fearing uh, for their lives, the better off we'll be. And I, and I just hope as this surge goes and, and, down, I hope we're endemic. <laughs> And the idea that we would disdain or restrict access to care for people who made bad decisions, we would have to keep most of the people out of the emergency room every day because the emergency room is just filled with drug addicts and car accidents and stupid things that people do. So, uh, yeah, I completely agree. And, and I don't want to give the impression that if you've had the vaccine, you're, there's no way you can get COVID. It, it happens. People get breakthrough infections. So just keep being careful. Do you agree? Yeah, definitely. You're just less likely to get very sick from it. Yeah, but breakthrough infections with Delta have not been uh, uncommon. Really, Cleveland Clinic, the last two months, I mean, 15% of our cases have been breakthrough infections. Um, and um, so it's certainly not rare at all. It's uncommon they end up in the ICU unless they're very old or immunocompromised. Uh, but more immunity, the better um, is really the, the, the thing. And um, yeah, and I just hope, I hope the worst is behind us. Oh, God, I hope your mouth to God's ears. Well, thank you. Great to meet you. And thank you for just uh, chatting it up with me. I, I don't get to, you know, ha get, nerd into, out. get nerd out with my peers so much. And I love doing it. So I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You bet. And uh, Caleb, care. thank you for all this. Uh, Susan, thank you for doing it. We still have a couple questions up from the Caleb in the, um, in the clubhouse. I, I think I'm going to have to wrap it up because uh, what's that, Susan? Well, I think we're going to do just an Ask Dr. Drew tomorrow. So you want oh, to come so, back? So tomorrow. You come on back tomorrow. If I'm this not is... going to be here. I'm going to set it up and we'll see how it goes. Yeah, we will do around what time? We we're supposed to tomorrow? do it yesterday, but yeah, we got stuck, stuck in an stuck airport in Phoenix. for 12 hours. Uh, so tomorrow, uh, Caleb, do we have a time? I'm not sure yet. 
Uh, it's it's something like midday tomorrow. It's an earlier time than usual. Twelve thirty. I I could do. I have to leave here by twelve, so it's a little bit Can you wonky do that? for me. Yeah, because you have to be at. I, um, I might need at, to do earlier, like around eleven. No, I can't do that either. No, we'll 12, have to talk 12, about twelve thirty. Well, the problem is getting all the way across the valley at one thirty in the afternoon. I got to be there by two. Oh, across the valley, it's only like a half hour. Uh, yeah, it's about that. You I can mean, do forty five minutes. All right, I can definitely do 45 minutes. I can definitely do that. So let's say 12.30 tomorrow will be... Unless Caleb can start earlier, but... No, 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 because I've got something before this. So let's say 12.30 tomorrow, we will take calls again from Clubhouse. So if you guys are on hold and have... Even if it's a COVID question, I'll, I'll answer tomorrow. But I'm interested in more general topics. We'll sort of pick up on what's going on in the news. And uh, we appreciate you all And then we'll be here. back Monday. The um, after We're going to be out of town. No, no. We're doing a Friday oh, show. Oh, Friday. Did we book that? We have We have not. There, we have got very special, special, maybe, we maybe special. confirmed that yet. This, we this might show, have a special Halloween special. Yeah, we have Friday. a special Halloween guest. From and, New Orleans. And we're going to have to do it from New Orleans. It's going to be quite a deal if we get yeah, there, we people this off. can't do it from off. a haunted mansion. But this guest is somebody uh, iconic. Uh, for if Halloween, if, yeah. if she's willing to come, and then we're going to squeeze a psychic in too. Maybe we'll get we'll get one lucky caller who can. And because Susan would like me to squeeze a psychic in, I'm I'm going to squeeze one in, and we're going to have our very special guest um, on there. Friday, right right in the afternoon time. I'd say later. Well, it, it'll be like and tomorrow. TS, five or six o'clock. Tomorrow TS is just questions, just calls off Clubhouse. <laughs> Maybe at, we should get tomorrow. Tyrus to get another psychic. Remember when we made him cry? Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, Monday we have your your. Your boyfriend. Uh, oh no, you have Art Kaplan. Art on Kaplan Monday. is a medical ethicist, a very fine medical ethicist. I, I want to talk to him everything COVID and you know what what we've been doing right and wrong as it pertains to how we trying to lose that YouTube channel and then unvaccinated. And then also Vinay Prasad is on Tuesday. Vinay the Prasad is a is amazing. Check out his podcast, Plenary Sessions. He, I can't wait to talk to him. He's, he's pre penned a bunch of interesting stuff re recently. Then we have some podcaster, Dax Holt. He used to be on TMZ and his buddy, possibly that evening. I think they're going to zoom in. We're trying to figure out if they can do that. Yes. Uh, ça, ça a l'air amusant, uh, Florimé, indeed. Vraiment. Carrément. Okay. So we appreciate you guys being here. We'll see you tomorrow around 1230 for a short one where we just take calls. And if the if you got anybody on hold of Clubhouse wants to come back Caleb, tomorrow. I need a, a, a longer picture, not just my little mug. <laughs> I like that picture. Like. Like a long one, like we always have on the banners. I don't know. I don't look know, at. Like I'll fix it. No. Or maybe no. just put it. Maybe just, can you move it up the page a little bit so I our heads such, are sort I of have equal such great level. Boobs. Come on. Give oh, it. I see. That's <laughs> no, what, I see. Okay. Well, just so it's like more. I don't know. I don't uh, want to be on camera. I just have to complain about my pictures on camera. Okay, I'm looking at the restream. <laughs> see if there's anything else you guys want to chat about. We got our luggage though, Drew. Oh, good. Right at the Excellent. top of the hour when Fantastic. we started the show. We've been trying to get our luggage from Phoenix since yesterday, so here we go. All right, everybody, thank you for being here. We'll see you tomorrow after, uh, around 1230 Pacific. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. 
If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com help.